Hello, and welcome to another edition of Discussing Disability, a podcast hosted by Arkansas Support Network. I'm Sayard Evans. I'm the CEO at Arkansas Support Network and the host of Discussing Disability. And each conversation that we come together and sit around the microphones, we take on a different topic or a different theme as it pertains to and relates to ASN and the work that we do. We're a home and community-based statewide disability service provider in Arkansas, and we support folks all across the state to live the lives that they desire and they choose in the communities that they desire and choose. And we really take a radical approach in the way that we do that. It's important to us to make sure that we are valuing the people that we support for the contributions that they bring to their communities and that we are really recognizing the opportunities to live real lives, not clean, careful, kept safe lives necessarily, but real lives that include risk and adventure and highs and lows and everything in between. And so the responsibility of providing that type of support gives us the benefit of really engaging in all aspects of life, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. And we find ourselves supporting people through the best times of their lives and through the best parts of their lives and also through the worst parts of their lives and through the end of their lives. And today's topic really is going to focus on that area that a lot of folks aren't necessarily comfortable talking about. But for me personally, I have a pretty deep passion for this topic and talk about it quite a bit. We do a lot of planning and support development around this topic. And so today we're going to talk about death and everything that comes along with death. I say often, and I believe it is completely true, that you cannot support a person to live a good quality of life unless you're committed to supporting them through a good quality death. And that makes a lot of folks uncomfortable. So with me today, typically we invite a range of people to these discussions and these conversations, and we'll have folks that represent different roles within ASN that sit down and talk to us kind of about their perspectives. Because death is a topic that a lot of folks aren't comfortable talking about, and a lot of folks, you know, really carry a lot of pain and grief and are in the process of grieving. We haven't taken that approach today. We haven't invited a number of folks. We're going to have a conversation between I and Lindsay Parker, who is the Director of Behavioral Health here at ASN. This is not Lindsay's first go around in the podcast space. She's great at it. She has a great perspective. And a lot of Lindsay's role and responsibility as director of behavioral health is very non-traditional. Our perspective and approach at ASN to behavioral health services for folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities is very unique in that we want to use behavioral health services as a tool for wellness. And we want to approach people's whole lives and think about how we can support and intervene on the behavioral health services side in a way that supports people to really have that 360 view of emotional wellness, regulation, those kinds of things. And so Lindsay winds up spending a lot of time talking about thinking about and planning supports around grief, loss, death, dying, those kinds of things. So 
Lindsay, you can give us a little bit of an intro to your position in this conversation. Give us a, a background about who you are and why you're excited to talk about death with me today. All right. My name is Lindsay Parker, and as Sayard said, I'm the director of behavioral health here at ASN. And I'll start with kind of how I got into that position. I started at ASN as an intern when I was in grad school for social work, and that quickly became a really big passion of mine and of Sayard's trying to fill that gap where the quality of life and the wellness of people that we support has been put on a back burner for a lot of the services that we provide. So that was three or four years ago, and now here I am as the Director of Behavioral Health. The way that death plays a part in the support planning that I do is understanding that grief is something that every single person experiences. And it may be because of the loss of a loved one, or it could be a major change in someone's life, particularly in the services we provide. There are a lot of changes and there's not a lot of space for processing different changes that are happening in your life. And so my department has really tried to focus on supporting people through grief, understanding what grief is, planning for the end of their life, and then also trying to fill in all of those spaces along the lifespan where quality of life supports are important. So death and grief and dying is just a piece of that life course support that we're providing. Awesome. I want to start by sharing a little bit of my connection to the topic of death or death as a topic, because I spend a lot of time talking about this and it's confusing to a lot of people that I think about death as much as I do and I care about death as much as I do because death is really that topic that most people want to pretend doesn't exist. And I would say, you know, having kind of personal experiences as a child, never having a lot of like close personal experiences with death and, you know, kind of navigating that space like everybody else pretty oblivious to it. When I was an undergrad, I was actually a, a freshman taking a psychology course And we had an assignment for some extra credit if we took on some volunteer hours. And so our professor said there's a bulletin board, go out to the bulletin board. You can pull any one of those projects. So some of them were like research projects where you come in and you look at a screen and memorize shapes and, you know, be a kind of a test subject. Some of them were, you know, some basic kinds of volunteer opportunities. And one of them that I had no idea what it was or what it meant or really any understanding of it. I'm not sure at the time, as a 18 year old kid, I knew what hospice was, but there was a flyer looking for students to volunteer for, I thought I was volunteering for a kid's camp, right? A day camp, that that's what it was. It was a day camp, but it was a bereavement camp for kids that was sponsored by a hospice organization in Fort Smith. And so I took the information and contacted them and said, hey, I need volunteer hours and I'd love to do this. And still had really no idea. You know, I thought we were going to be fishing and canoeing, which we did. But I had no conception that we were going to dive into this exploration of grief and actually be interacting with kids who had experienced significant loss and helping them build resiliency and coping skills and really normalize and validate what they were experiencing. It was this amazing kind of complex approach. 
And I didn't know what I was doing at all. But a part of your volunteer was there was a kind of an orientation, a four hour orientation we did on a weekend, a couple of weekends before the, the day camp. And it really broke down the misconceptions around grief and the misconceptions around loss and how we experience that emotionally. And it was all really focused on just normalizing the fact that grief is a very individualized, personal process. And where you are in it is exactly where you need to be in it. And it makes all the sense in the world as long as you accept that, right? That the the most harmful aspect of grief is when you fight what you're experiencing and what you're feeling with grief, which is absolutely counter to what everybody else in the world kind of thinks and believes in how they operate. So it was an amazing experience. I actually wound up volunteering for that bereavement camp, I, I want to say for probably eight years, became a lead counselor and still to this day tell stories about some of the kids and what they would share in those groups. And one little girl that I will never forget, she had four siblings, a member of a five kid sibling group, and their mom had passed away in childbirth with the fifth sibling. And I actually had met and worked with her older brother the year before. And so I knew them. I knew their story. I knew about them. And I came back the next year and and I was in a younger age group and she was in my group and she was so quiet, so quiet, said almost nothing, you know, really needed a lot of people to pull her out and pull her around. And by the end of the day, we're sitting around and we're talking about these concepts about specifically about the fact that grief really gives you these conflicting emotions. And, you know, it's really confusing because I feel something so strongly while also feeling the exact opposite thing so strongly as well. And it makes me feel like something's wrong with me, right? That contrast makes you feel like I'm not doing this right. But in reality, it's completely right. It, it, it makes all sense. It's valid. And there's every reason why you should feel this way. And I'm explaining this to kids in this really animated way. We had just gone fishing and we were tying this kind of contrast to the patience and the disappointment of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting within this excitement that comes when you actually get a fish on your hook. So we would take these everyday activities and try to tie those experiences to grief and what that meant. And I remember her sitting crisscross applesauce in this circle and, you know, just kind of looking at the ground. She had a little stuffed animal that she was cuddling. And I remember like explaining that. And she looked up at me and made eye contact. And she said, you know, I love my baby sister. I love her a lot. But sometimes I really wish she wasn't here because if she wasn't here, my mom would still be. And I was like, oh, my God. Got, like blown away, blown away by her, by what I knew that she carried through this world, but by the effectiveness of being able to normalize that for her, right? This is a kid that might have said she wanted a hot dog instead of a hamburger at lunch. But other than that, I don't think I'd heard her say anything. And to be able to work that really complex experience into these basic concepts that freed her to really be able to admit that, right? Because what you knew was that she carried a lot of guilt around for wishing her sister wasn't here. And that was a very enlightening experience for me being a part of that. Since then, I have 
on and off for years and actually just recently up until the pandemic hit, volunteered for hospice. And I enjoy going and getting to do absolutely nothing but sit and talk and visit to people that know that they're in the end of life and really process through those experiences. I think it's fascinating. I think it's some of the most powerful and meaningful lessons about life that we can get and obtain. And then you know, personally, I feel that way. And then the work that I've done at ASN for almost 23 years now, more times than I can count, I've found myself in this situation, in this position of supporting people to die and supporting people to grieve the loss of folks and, you know, the complicated ways in which we approach that. And Sometimes it's contrasting when you talk about disability and the way that we fight so hard to value people's lives and to demand that the world around them values their life. You get to a space and a place where we know supporting this person to live that good life and die that that quality death means that you have to stop fighting for that value to live and accept the fact that death is a part of supporting this person. And it is extremely difficult. And Lindsay, I know we really kind of jumped off into some of our death-focused work, really following a situation not long after you had started working here where a person we support passed away suddenly and the management team was kind of left with the trauma of not being prepared for that not being prepared for the decisions that they needed to make or the emotions that they were going to feel and actually reached out and said, hey, can we do something? Can we do something so that we don't have to ever go through this this way again? Could you kind of talk about that situation and what we've done as a response to that? Yeah. You know, so this situation, actually, it's really imprinted on my heart because in my own personal life, when I first started working here and was helping support some managers through the loss of someone that we support, simultaneously, I had also just lost my grandmother, who I was very, very, very close with my whole life. And actually, before I came to ASN, I was being a caregiver for her at the end of her life and was there with her through hospice and I would say before that personal experience for me, I was very similar to you in the fact that I had lost people close to me, but I was a little resistant to the whole process of it. I really didn't like going to funerals where there was an open casket. I felt very uncomfortable and just tried to kind of push that whole end of life thing out of my thoughts until I experienced that personally and was able to care for my granny at the end of her life and even after she passed, preparing her body for hospice to come pick up. And so that kind of coinciding with what was going on here at ASN, it became a real passion of mine to create something that we could use to help people have a good life. You know, my grandmother did not want to go to a nursing home and she would fight you tooth and nail not to go. And so we had her in the home and I just remember how important that was to her and telling stories of the things that we were going to pass on about her was very important to her. And, you know, the people we support deserve to have that same kind of dignity in death. And for this particular individual who had passed that we supported, we hadn't had those discussions with him, you know, whereas my grandmother had planned down to the song that was going to be played at her service. 
we didn't know what this person wanted. And so on top of the managers and the team grieving the loss of someone that they loved and cared about, they were also grieving the fact that the decisions they were having to make, they weren't sure if those were the decisions that that individual would actually want, which put a whole nother level of grief. And so what we created was an end of life planning guide. And it really starts at concepts like grief and bereavement and grieving. And what does that mean? What does it look like? And as we know, it looks a hundred different ways. And so simultaneously, it doesn't look like anything specific down to what is an obituary? What would you like to be said about you and your obituary? When you're at the end of your life, what are some things that you would want going through options like DNRs and going to a nursing home, those different kind of decisions that someone would have to make. And then to post-death, what do you want to happen to your body? Do you want to be buried? Is there somewhere that you have family that's buried, that it's important to you that you're buried with your family? Do you want to be cremated and have your ashes spread somewhere? Or do you want to donate your body to science? Just there's so many options out there. And I think oftentimes, like you said, we don't want to accept the fact that people do die and the services that we provide are lifelong services. And so that's going to be part of the support that we provide. And so I think that the whole project was really to just start the conversation and help people have some sort of workbook to use to really go through those difficult topics learn about them, not just, okay, do you want to be buried, cremated, or donated to science? Because nobody can make that decision right off the top of their head if they don't know what those options even look like. So I think education is a huge first step in just changing our culture of our organization and society to be more open and willing to talk about these decisions. Yeah, that's such a really important part. Through that project, we've kind of stumbled upon a tool that I think is absolutely fascinating. And I'm excited to kind of continue utilizing it in a meaningful way. One, because it does such a good job of really looking at death through a different lens and requiring people to engage in conversations around death in a functional way that they would not otherwise. But also because I see it really as a community building tool, which is something where constantly focused on is how can we build meaningful community and community connections that are diverse and inclusive of everyone. And that is the death over dinner structure. And death over dinner is something that I was introduced to from a Facebook friend, a woman named Allie Brill, that I met as a strongman competitor. She and I competed in 2014 in the National Amateur Strongman Competition and only ever knew each other in that moment and in that role. But we, you know, you become Facebook friends with everyone you encounter at that time. And so Allie and I became Facebook friends and Allie actually experienced the loss of a partner. And it, you know, she was a young woman and it was really kind of transformative in her life. And so going through her graduate studies, she got really focused on death and she's continues to be really focused on kind of burial options, kind of eco-friendly ways in which you can go about those things. But Allie and I weren't strongly connected and didn't talk a lot, but 
thumbing through my newsfeed one day and I see this post, this invite to an event and it's like peak pandemic time where you do absolutely nothing. I was going to work, coming home and sitting in my recliner and everything was virtual you know, I would log on to live DJ sessions online and Leslie Jordan, who just passed away, became this major influencer in all of our morale because there was nothing else to do but be locked down. And so this invite to a virtual death over dinner and, you know, it had me at death. I was like, sign me. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, but let's do it. And so I log on to this project. First off, I get all this information ahead of time. So there's the death over dinner format has kind of pre-work that you do. And then you have a meal with people. You come, you're supposed to sit around the table. That original conversation for me was virtual with people I'd never met before. I was kind of the odd person out because most people on your Facebook feed don't say, yes, I would love to do death over dinner with you. But I was really excited about it. And it was such a great conversation. And so that's a tool that I kind of brought back to you and said, look at this. And in true Lindsay fashion, you said, I think this is awesome. So can you talk a little bit about the death over dinner structure and how we have kind of begun to use it and how we envision it really influencing, supporting people? Yeah, so death over dinner was a really exciting and interesting concept having dinner with I think it's strangers is what they actually advise you to do or encourage you to do so on top of our society not being super comfortable talking about death with even loved ones it adds a whole nother kind of layer to it which is exciting to me and so like you said there's some material beforehand that helps kind of prepare people for the conversation I think it helped me ease my nerves a little bit, knowing kind of what I would be talking about and having some ground things to kind of work off of. And so we brought together a group at first of kind of management leadership here at ASN to start this conversation because we know that, you know, if the managers can't get comfortable with the idea of talking about death and probably our DSPs and the people we support, they're not going to feel comfortable either. And so we have to make sure that the people leading those conversations feel comfortable doing it. So we had our team come together and at the beginning of the dinner, we lit a candle or lit a press light for accessibility and just shared about someone that we have lost in our life and some characteristics about that person that stick with us that we wanna carry on in our own life. And I think for me, it was, a really eye-opening opportunity to look at my coworkers in a different light and being able to really see just a small glimpse into like some of what they have dealt with, you know, people who have lost their moms and their siblings and things that I never really knew about people that I was working alongside. And there was a lot of uncomfortability, I think, in that conversation, which was what we wanted. I think we can't get to the point where we're comfortable until we wade through that uncomfortability. And so we sat and we had a conversation about people we loved. We had some topics to talk about based on our own wishes and what we would like for the end of our life. And then we wrapped up by going back to those people in the beginning that we had remembered. And I think holding space for the people we had lost during that conversation and bringing it back to that was just a really special special moment. And so, 
you know, we started that with the management level. We have been dealing with trying to minimize in-person interactions and it's kind of difficult to organize a virtual dinner with the people that we support oftentimes. And so this is something that is pocketed in our department for this overarching topic of grief and death and end of life and something that we really hope to be able to start implementing in small pockets with families, with community members, with different teams, and really making it culture that someone can pick up the note cards and just go plan a dinner. And it doesn't have to be the behavioral health department. It could just be a manager casually having a conversation with someone over snacks. We've talked about, you know, maybe death over dinners a lot, maybe death over snacks or death over drinks or something like that. So being able to be flexible with that to where it really fits into what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. I will say for anybody that's interested, you know, Google death over dinner. It's a great framework. It's a tool that's out there. You know, we are constantly looking at how we take the best of things that are offered in the world and modify those and, you know, take kind of innovative perspectives to them to accommodate different people's needs. But just as a platform, just as a curriculum or a structure or whatever you want to call it, however you want to define it, Death Over Dinner is a really good tool that's available. It's a website. It walks you through. It gives you a wide variety of kind of prep materials. You mentioned that kind of doing that pre-work before showing up kind of puts you in the right mind space to have these conversations and alleviate some of your anxiety about coming in. And so the Death Over Dinner website actually provides podcasts or YouTube videos or articles so that there's an accessible format for people to really consume just a little kind of bite-sized bit of information around a topic related to death. There's a pretty wide variety of topics as well. And so it's an excellent format that, again, I think is a really great tool to normalize this conversation and also really stresses the importance of normalizing this conversation. You know, there are some statistics that drive even the creation of Death Over Dinner that look at the fact that the majority of folks living in the U.S. will tell you that they don't want to die in a hospital, but almost everyone does. And the majority of folks that have significant financial debt, it's tied to medical expense and end of life medical expense. And so, you know, there are all these things about what we say we want our lives to look like and what our values are. But because of our reluctance, inability or unwillingness to really be honest with one another about death and how we feel about death and what we want for ourselves, we wind up living the exact opposite of what we desire and, and what our values are. So that was kind of the driving reality that caused Death Over Dinner to be created at all. So it's a great tool and you should definitely Google it and check it out. I will say too that, you know, what was really surprising during Death Over Dinner is I remember us having a conversation about our own death plans and end of life plans and if we've talked to our family members about what we would like. And it was pretty illuminating to see that we're sitting here wanting to figure out how we have conversations with the people we support about planning the end of their life when the majority of the people in the room didn't even feel comfortable talking to their own family and making their own end of life plans. Most of the people in the room didn't have a will or have anything written down. And so this is not just, you know, a disability issue. This is really a cultural thing in our society where we just don't 
plan for it. We push it out of sight, out of mind, and just kind of hope that it doesn't happen. So I felt like that was pretty telling to see that most of us didn't have that figured out either. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think with all things that society struggles with, folks with disabilities wind up having even greater barriers to go through, right? If the world is not comfortable with taboo topics like death, sexuality, you know, religion, those kinds of things, then folks with disabilities wind up getting a compounded kind of oppressive ideology around those things. And so we see some of the formative experiences for me as a DSP and as a support provider have really connected back to that. I started working at ASN when I was 19 as a DSP. And within a couple of months, I was introduced to a little girl, a nine-year-old little girl who had autism, did not use verbal communication, and was quite frankly, one of the most skilled disruptors that I've ever met in my life. She knew every way to really be in control of a situation through chaos and disruption. And she was the type of person that, you know, if physical aggression was the thing that a supporter didn't know how to respond to, that's what she would give you. She was a headbutter and a hitter and a biter and all those things. And so she would get support staff that were like big, bulky football players because she's this nine-year-old little girl and you can't necessarily beat them up. And so her approach and perspective with them would be to scream incessantly at the top of her lungs in public places, or she knew very well that other human beings really didn't respond well to body fluids. And so she would smear feces or she could make herself vomit. I did a TED Talk several years ago at TEDx, and I tell her story, kind of my introduction to her, because I've never met anyone better than her at really being able to read people, know people, and be in control. At nine, she had this skill. It was pretty amazing. And I say every time I talk about her, I've seen these big grown football playing men cry because she got the better of them. She's just really good at it. And I had been working with her for probably about nine months, less than a year. And at nine, she had been receiving services from ASN since she was two. She was in the custody of the state. And she, I imagine, had probably seen hundreds and hundreds of direct support professionals and foster settings and inpatient, resp- just you name it. She'd been in a million different scenarios. And when I met her, she was living with a foster family and she had a direct support professional who was this young guy. I think he was 23, 24. He was a college student, but he had worked with her since he was in high school or since he had just come out of high school. And it was her longest relationship. He had been a part of her life longer than any other human being, including her biological parent, anybody. He had been a part of her life longer than anyone. And he picked her up after school and he worked till like eight o'clock in the evening. He would put her to bed at night and then he'd be back the next morning. And I worked with her on the weekends. She stayed with me for respite. And then I was her home supervisor. So I was responsible for her schedule and paperwork, documentation, all that kind of stuff. And I worked Monday through Friday, eight to four in another home. And he had Worked with her one night, one random weekday and left. He actually clocked out at 
ate and stayed for about an hour and a half talking with her foster mom about, you know, her upcoming IEP and, you know, things that she was progressing on, just pretty typical stuff. Her foster mom would feed him and he'd, you know, at this point, he was a part of our family, our extended family, this family that was committed to supporting her. And so he did that. He wound up leaving there a little bit before 10, going home. He said he had some homework to do. And the next morning, I get a phone call from her foster mom, who's hysterical, screaming, crying. I can't even understand what she's saying. I had to hang up and call her back. And she's hysterical because there's a picture in the newspaper of a car accident from the night before, and it's his car flipped over upside down. And he had a car wreck on the way home and passed away in that car wreck. And it was devastating. We were all devastated. And we were all so devastated with the loss of him that we were so focused on on that piece of it. His family asked me to speak at his funeral on her behalf from her perspective because she didn't use verbal communication and really didn't have a reliable means of expression. And so they asked me to speak for her. And I did. I was a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid. And I did. And the whole time we were really kind of carrying the grief of what had happened. And at no point did we sit down and talk to her. At no point did it occur to anybody to say, hey, right, the most consistent, reliable, stable human being in your life that comes here every day. The only thing that looks the same or has been the same for you for the last four or five years, it's not going to be here today. Right. Nobody, nobody said any of that. We kind of tried everything we could to hold ourselves together and were really self-centered in the process of that and just trying to make sure she got a bath and, you know, clothes in that process. She did not attend the funeral. I don't even know who decided that. I don't remember it being a discussion. She just didn't attend the funeral. She was at school during the funeral. And about 36 hours after the funeral, all hell broke loose. She started pulling dishes out of the cabinets and throwing them on the ground and busting them and breaking them. She broke everything in that house that you could possibly imagine and just screamed and spit. She was so mad at all of us. And that went on for days. And it wasn't until one day in this kind of rage she grabbed the newspaper and just like went to she's hitting with this newspaper. She's hitting her foster mom. And I said, oh, my God. Like, you know, you you understand all of this and we've left you out of this completely. Like we have totally neglected that in the loss that we experienced and the grief that we're feeling, we ignored yours totally. And I vowed that day I would never make that mistake again. And so we wind up having lots of conversations with families and people who love folks that we support about concerns, right? I'm concerned that if we tell them. A few years ago, a, a guy that we support who lives in his own apartment and has a roommate, his sister called a couple of days after his mom's funeral to tell the support staff that his mom had passed away. And she didn't want to let him know because she was concerned he would have behaviors. And I just, every time we encounter those situations, I reflect back on that experience and that situation that I was a part of 
you know, not supporting someone appropriately and not recognizing that our job as a support system should have been first and foremost to communicate with her and to support her in a way that gave her the validation for what she was experiencing. And we just assumed because of her limitations that wasn't necessary. I know you have encountered some of those situations as well and would love to hear about some experiences. Yeah. Ugh. (laughs) This always gets me kind of worked up. Just the idea of protection in this sense of really protecting people from life's losses and grief because of the idea that they will have quote unquote behavior while grieving is emotions and behavior. That's how we express our grief is through our behavior. And I can recalled multiple times when I've been grieving in my life and different behaviors that I had during that time from crying to yelling and maybe punching a pillow and just all kinds of things, behaviors all over the place. And so, you know, one thing that I really think about during this conversation is the idea that time heals all things. You know, that's kind of a cliche thing and not necessarily true, but grief does evolve and change over time. But if you are not actively expressing that grief or if you're protecting someone from their grief, then their grief doesn't really change all that much. And the things that we do to protect people from feeling that grief end up being what harms them in the long run. And so, you know, during this conversation, instead of thinking of the specific instances, because I can think of many, you know, I would encourage people listening to really think about how they would feel in that situation where your best friend or your mom or your brother passed away and nobody told you that they died and nobody included you in that process. People acted like you didn't care about that person. And, you know, think about also times that you have been included in the grieving process and how important it was to be around your family during that time or to be able to go to a funeral service, see an open casket, get closure with whatever it is, whatever that process looks like. And think about how impactful that was on your healing journey in your life. And then really try to think about what we're protecting people from, because if you're parent passes away, it's only a matter of time until you know that they're gone. And without the education and experience, people oftentimes are not only confused, but it leaves space for completely different kinds of grief where you may feel guilty, you know, for this little girl that you're talking about. What if her and her DSP had gotten an argument that day or she had been, you know, reckless that day and just felt like when he left, he was maybe feeling really down or felt like they didn't have a great day. And then he died. So now does she conceptualize that she's the reason why he died? So there's just all these layers to death and grief that we have to get comfortable talking about and giving people the full picture, not using euphemisms, using real language and, you know, giving people the details of what's going on in their life so that they can adequately process it. Yeah. But you saying that makes me think about a conversation that I had with a mom several years ago. Her son was an adult who lived at home with her. And we had a personal outcome measures interviewer who had reached out to the family to conduct a personal outcome measure interview. 
And as a part of that, there are some questions around end of life planning and, you know, do you have plans, expectations, things like that. And so mom had asked to review the questions first and had asked the interviewer to not ask any questions related to end of life planning or loss or grief or anything like that. And the interviewer contacted me and said, what should I do? And I said, well, we're going to honor mom's request, right? We'll do what she asks, but I'm going to call mom and just have a conversation with her. And I did. And I said, you know, that's fine if you don't want us to ask that, but I'm curious, you know, kind of what your thought process is or your rationale. And she said, well, you know, he just really fixates on things. And if we talk about death or if death is mentioned, then he's really going to fixate on me and his dad dying. And, you know, that goes to a really ugly place and it's difficult and it's something he really struggles to process. And I said, you know, I certainly understand that. But all I can think about is the day that you do die, someone's going to have to talk to him about you not being here anymore. And he's going to go into that ugly, awful place. And when he does, he's going to be without his number one support system, right? Like I understand there's potentially some inconvenience and discomfort of him having to process through that today here as a fixation, but he gets to do that having access to the most important support system that he has in his life. And if we don't go through that now with you here to support him, the day that 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 becomes his reality, he has to face that same thing only worse because he doesn't have you here to help him prepare for that and to really set expectations for what that looks like. And, you know, I said, I'm not asking you to change your decision. I just want you to carry that with you and think about that when this conversation comes up the next time. And I think from a support perspective, that's such an important way for us to approach it. And most people don't know how. Right. Somebody says, no, we don't want to talk about death. And we say, "Okay, well, we're not going to. Yeah. You mom said no. The guardian said no. This individual said no. And I think it's so essential for us to learn how to say, yes, we honor that wish, but we're going to continue to raise this issue in a respectful, supportive way, because this is probably the one thing that we you know, I always say, I, people tell me I have to do something. I say, I have to breathe and die. Those are the only two things I have to do. Some people throw pay taxes in there, but really you cannot pay tax. There are consequences, but you can get away with not doing it. But breathe and die. That's it. Right. This is that permanent reality for all of us. Death and the death of people that we love and care about is inevitable. It's coming. And from a support perspective, I go back to what we opened with. If you want to support people to live a good quality of life, you have to be willing and able to support people to die a quality death and to experience death in a quality way of the people that they love and support. So I'm excited Again, the word that people usually use around this conversation, but I'm excited about the work that we're doing here, specifically as it pertains to grief, loss and death. We've got a phenomenal partnership with Circle of Life Hospice. They have been such a friend and such a resource and come and done grief groups in response to deaths that we've experienced as a community at ASN. They've provided 
information and education and consultation and really shown up in some spaces for us in a way that has been invaluable. And, you know, I'm hopeful that just the work that we've done really in the last probably three or four years around this topic, that every day we're normalizing these conversations just a little bit more. I think this discussion, putting this out on the airwaves and, you know, all of these efforts kind of point us in the direction more of getting to a place where we can talk about these things in a meaningful way so that the people that we support can experience good supports at the times in their lives when they need it most, but also so we can really, as human beings, I think most people carry around a significant anxiety and a significant burden because we haven't learned or been given permission to really experience the emotions of grief and accept them and validate them and value them the way we need to. So I appreciate you being here today. I'd love if you had any final thoughts or information you'd like to share. Yeah, I just I think I'll end on, you know, all of these different concepts that we've talked about today. They really overlap. And, you know, when we're talking about end of life planning, you can't really help someone plan the end of their life unless they have had education, experience, exposure, shout out to CQL, (laughs) (laughs) in understanding death and being able to experience loss in their life. And it's a lot more difficult of a conversation for you to talk to someone about the fact that they're going to die if they have never experienced other people around them dying or even talking about the loss of pets or TV shows that they've watched where people have died. And really opening up that conversation, it's hard to have one without the other. And this is something that families can really do to also ease that anxiety of what happens once I'm gone. I know a lot of families that I talk to, even though they're scared of end of life planning for the person that their child or the person they love, you know, they don't really have a plan for their end of life. And they're really worried about what will happen to that person whenever they're gone. And so, you know, one way to really alleviate anxiety and fear is through addressing it, talking about it, being exposed to it and starting that conversation. So I hope that everybody listening today will go talk to someone about death. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the message. Approach a person in the grocery store that you've never met before and ask them how they feel about dying. Um, No, no, probably not that route. But no, I agree. I I think, you know, the best case scenario of the work that we're doing and some of the intentional actions is that we can create a community where we can talk about death and be honest about death and be honest about our feelings and what we're experiencing and grief and how that sits on us. So those are lofty goals and I'm, I'm glad to have them. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing to help us get closer to that. So Thanks for joining in and join in next time for Discussing Disability, a podcast hosted by Arkansas Support Network.